Good morning, everyone. Let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer. Lord, we just come before you just so humble, so gracious that you sent your son. And we just, we thank you for the opportunity to gather again this morning and just praise your name and lift your uh, lift uh, your, your name up in song, and Lord, just, um, we just pray as we look, d- dive deep into your word that your, your truths would come out, and they would just uh, cause us to, to reflect on our life, our life with you, our life with our loved ones, the, the privileges we have in this country, the privileges we have uh, with our health, things we often take very much for granted. And we are very much uh, aware of those in our body who are suffering right now in many ways. And we lift them up to you, and we just thank you for this time. And we just thank you for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would open your Bibles, please, to Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 17. Um, And um, if I could ask you to uh, stand in the honor of the reading of God's word, if you're able to. This will be a continuation of Paul's defense of the true gospel and his own apostleship in light of constant attacks by Judaizers. Verse 11. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For neither I received it from men, nor was I taught it, but I received it through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my, my countrymen, being more extensively je- zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Maybe seated. Paul here in verse 11 reiterates really what he's been saying since verse 1 in his message. As the messenger who brings it, it is sent from God. And so in ramping up to these verses, I want to review where we've come from so far. Paul has proclaimed his apostleship with righteous anger at times amidst Judaizers who were proclaiming a false gospel to new believers who were being taken in by this false gospel, this false presentation. And as we continue to see, revolting against holy truth was no more stomached in Jesus' day than it is really today. The Jewish Pharisees refused to accept Jesus' truths because he challenged their traditions. 
but their traditions were not God's truth. In John 5, verse 30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. And of course, Jesus goes on to add to this testimony, the testimony of the truth of his righteousness, the testimony of the truth of the Father, and the testimony of the truth of the scriptures. Further, in John 18, verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this purpose, for this purpose I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? I'm going to give you a statement that is probably the most offensive claim that can be made in the realm of religion. The most shocking claim that can be made about God. So if there are small children next to you, you might want to cover their ears. Here goes. There's only one God, one Savior, one holy book, one gospel, one truth. One way of salvation. All other religious claims are lies and deceptions, doctrines of Satan, and demons that lead people to eternal hell. Sorry, that's the most offensive statement I could come up with, but it's true. Uh, and the lies and distortions that carry over, not just in Paul's time, but to today, to our culture, is a culture that despises absolute truth, rejects authority, rejects absolute reality, and absolute authority. And yet that is precisely what Christianity offers. It's what the gospel offers. It's what we declare. And so, as in the days of Judges, where there was no king, everyone continued and continues to do what is right in his own eyes. The gospel that Paul is talking about here in Galatians 1 verse 11, I think is best illustrated in our, in our own Baraka Bible, Affirmations and Denials of Salvation, which I quote, and of which, by the way, we elders encourage you all to read and reread. Saving faith has the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did as its object. It requires that a person be enabled or enlightened by the Holy Spirit to understand and trust, one, the Lord Jesus Christ as God the Son gave his life on the cross, two, by his death, Christ paid the penalty of sin that each person deserves because of his or her personal sin against God, and three, Christ was resurrected as proof of who he is and his promises of salvation. Now, in this we pulled from Romans 9, verse 10. 
The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The most basic elements of our being come into play here. And they come into play in Galatians, they come into play here, they come into play every time we share the gospel with someone, the true gospel. That is, people, it's our heart and our mind. As Jesus said to the woman at the well in John, we worship in spirit and truth. So again, the specific occasion that prompted the letter to the Galatians was a violation of this. It was an invasion by the Judaizers who were professing Christian Jews who believed that the law of Moses had to be fully adhered to in order for salvation to be received, including strict observance of the Sabbath and and Judaistic customs. So they followed Paul into Galatia, and they began to Judaize the congregations that he established. Their whole purpose was to insert a corrupt, false gospel, the very thing I've just been preaching against. They claimed to be true Christian believers who were the true teachers, and that Paul was the false teacher. Yes, they believed in Christ. Yes, they claimed to believe in his death and resurrection. Yes, they even claimed there was grace and salvation, and that faith played a role. But works must be added. In doing so, Paul says in Galatians 3, they added a curse to people that would bring about the fury of God himself, who would curse that gospel and all its adherents. That gospel, with its man-made traditions, perpetuated by the Pharisees and scribes in Jesus' time, had by this time nearly crushed, put uh, put a crushing weight on the people. If you'd please go over with me to Matthew 15, uh, verses uh, 1 through 9. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves also break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and the one who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or mother. And by this you have invalidated the word of God for the sake of what? Your tradition. You hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy about you saying, the people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain do they worship me. In contrast, Jesus welcomed his hearers with liberating words of true refreshment, 
which Paul reiterates here in Galatians. In Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my yoke is light. Now the Lord here is not talking about relieving a, relieving a physical labor, but is offering freedom to those under the burden of an oppressive Judaistic legalism from which they could get neither relief nor happiness nor satisfaction. St. Augustine once prescribed a course which could be put to good use today, curing false gospels of man-made works in our era. Do you wish to rise? Begin by descending. You plan a tower that will pierce the clouds? Lay first the foundation of humility. If you would go over with me, if you would, to the book of Joel, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. Yet even now, decries the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. So rend your hearts and not your garments, and return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate slow to anger, abound in loving devotion, and he relents from sending disaster. Who knows? He may turn and relent and, and leave a blessing behind him, grain and drink offerings for the Lord your God. And I ask you people, now as then, do we rend our hearts when we come to God or just our garments? That is, do we give what is convenient to us to God and not what he desires? P.J. O'Rourke, a secular libertarian journalist, war correspondent, and satirist, before his death in 1994 wrote, every generation finds the drug it needs. O'Rourke reminded us of a constant across generations. Sometime that drug was an actual drug, sometimes an ideology, or here perhaps a false religious expression. But today, he says, the rising generation gets high on a uniquely potent narcotic, absolute confidence in our own exceptionalism. And I would add here, probably raised to the level of religion. When we worship, are we in fact worshiping in a self-generated, self-styled version of true worship that flatters us, accommodates us, focuses on us in some way that shines the glory on us as we pledge honor to God with our lips but not our hearts? Slaves in the South would often twist their horrendous situation by actually bragging how much was paid for them. 
I'm reading a book on Thomas Jefferson, a biography of spirit and flesh uh, written by Thomas Kidd. It describes Jefferson's embracing of rational Christianity in the election of 1800 when his opponents were trying to trap him as an atheist. Jefferson was convinced that there was a reasonable type of Christianity that he could take seriously, that since God made man rational and so above other creatures, that Jefferson believed he would stand before God on Judgment Day assured of his salvation because he had approached God as supremely rational. Not in Jefferson's worldview was, as he called it, a sort of metaphysical blend of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And on Orthodox, a book by Deborah Feldman about an ultra-Orthodox ultra girl trying to escape the tyranny of Orthodox Jewish life in Brooklyn, her rabbi in New York tells them to be more Ehrlich. This is a, a Yiddish word for being more devout. How? No, not by following the only true God in spirit and truth, but by tightening the circle around their own Hasidic Jewishness as a response to the Holocaust. So if one goes to more extreme lengths to make God proud of us, he will never hurt us again like he did in the war. So my own modern-day Judaistic, non-Pauline spiritual walk becomes not about my sin, but about rationalizing God, accepting me for who I am and how I choose to serve him. But before we get too puffed up, we are all capable of doing this, custom designing our own view of Christian life, ignoring all our own hypocrisy, playing situational ethics games with sin. Stretching our Christian faith at times almost to the breaking point and protecting our own reputations by willfully lying and deflecting blame. Projecting power over others, preening our vanity, taking advantage of any status we may have, creating victimhood for ourselves. In other words, our own pharisaical tendencies. Does this hit home with people? Hopefully it, it should. So this was not just a problem in Jesus' day, nor is it a new problem today. Man has ceaselessly endeavored over time to shape-shift his own personal understanding of who God and Jesus was to conform to his own ideas about right and wrong, his own ideas about rationalizing and excusing his own behavior and sin, all the while subtly, subtly trampling the scriptures underfoot by, by reviling his neighbors rather than loving his neighbors. I have a consistent quiet time. We homeschooled our kids in exactly the right way. We attend church faithfully and have been married for 40 years. Not that these are bad things, but they are not qualifiers or badges of our Christian life. They should be natural outgrowths done in humility based on Jesus' work on the cross. Sure, I'm an elder. I have special privileges, such as the right to tell you how to live. But don't examine me, I'm exempt. No, that's not how it works. Why does it not work this way? 
we are all, yes, including me, to soberly examine ourselves, not just for the sake of our own walk, but for the protection of the body, the church. Psalm 139, 23 to 24. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Romans 12, 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, wow, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each such a measure of faith. Well, how is that done? Through the gospel. Through the simple gospel. Remember last time in Galatians 1.10, Paul declared his unassailable servanthood in Christ after having bared his soul in verse 8 by saying, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. So Paul's including himself in this group. And then immediately on the heels of that defense in verse 10, he addressed the matter of where did he get his message? That was from the Lord. If we look at uh, verses 11 and 12 now as we sort of launch into the, this actual study. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, which that's, what we, that's just what we've been talking about. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ. And he says, as he has been saying, I am a true apostle. Based on what? Based on the fact I received the truth of the gospel from a revelation that came to me through Jesus Christ. How did the twelve apostles receive the gospel? From the lips of whom? Not from rabbis. They received everything over a period of three years from the lips of Jesus. Everything. That was unique to the apostles. That's what made them apostles. They had direct revelation of the gospel. In fact, Jesus said when they affirmed his messiahship, if you would go with me over to Matthew 16... Verse 13. Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because why? Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
I also say that to you, or Peter, Petros, rock, and upon this Petra, rock, large boulder, meaning himself, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Our faith, people, is not built on the Cephas of man's wisdom, but on Matthew 7.24, the foundation boulder that's large enough to support a house. So Paul didn't learn this from the people around him. Paul didn't even learn this from those who believe the truth about the Old Testament. It came directly from the Father through Jesus to him. This is the unique revelation, again, that comes to an apostle. So Paul is making systematically his case for who he is as an apostle. Now, why should we believe Paul is an apostle? The answer is because I received the gospel the exact same way that the twelve received it, from the mouth of Jesus himself. And so the Galatians had not just attacked the gospel. In order to attack the gospel, which we've obviously observed their strategy for this, they have to torpedo the preacher of it, which is, which is Paul himself. Now those in Galatia, as in other places where Paul went on his three missionary journeys, believed him to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. They believed he was a true teacher, that God had called him, and that God had given him truth, and that he was speaking for God. The false teachers knew that if people continued to believe he was a true apostle, they would hold on to his message. So it was important to denounce not only the message, but the authority that he claimed. And so there was this relentless attack dogging the whole history of Paul's missionary life, the attack on his authority. In Galatians 6.17, Paul says, From now on, let no one cause trouble for me. Paul pushes back on the issue of the questioning of his authority. In essence, stop harassing me. Stop denouncing my apostolic authority, for I bear on my body the scars of Jesus. As you know, brothers and sisters, some of those scars Paul received were in Galatia, in the city of Lystra, where he was stoned and left for dead. Paul had made himself, as he had said in verse 10, a, a servant, a doulos, a slave of Jesus Christ, and he bears the scars to prove it. He was beaten with whips, he was beaten with rods. Paul is saying, I've taken everything they've thrown at me, Jews and Gentiles, if all I want to do was to be admired by men and be popular with men, why would I have this many scars? How do we also know this is true? Because Satan and his minions, the source of heresy here, know it to be true. Now, they understand the facts of salvation, but have no interest in any saving understanding of Scripture. And I, I think John Piper speaks very eloquently of that. He says, um, I believe there's a Satan precisely because I believe in Jesus. If Satan is our mythological holdover from a pre-scientific age, then the lifelong struggle of the Lord Jesus was mere shadow boxing. For example, um, Satan knows the Bible, and he loves to quote scripture to destroy faith. 
He tried to persuade Jesus to what? Throw himself down from the temple roof. How? He argued from Scripture. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. Matthew 4, 6. Satan does not always try to ruin faith by saying the Bible isn't true. He often tries to destroy our faith by affirming some passage, some passage and using it to lead us into disobedience. Well, this is exactly what the Judaizers were doing in Galatians 1. The word of God alone keeps faith alive. So as believers, we cling to it, and Satan cannot tear it away because we're held by him. We have assurance of salvation. So Satan studies it. It's why he quotes Psalm 91, 11, 12, about angels bearing up Jesus lest he should fall. He studies how to distort it and pervert scripture by plausible misinterpretations, the theme of what we're dealing with today. For example, what makes Satan happy is when he can get Christians to believe that Proverbs 15, 6 where it says, in the house of the righteous there is much treasure, but trouble befalls the, inc the, um, the income of the wicked, justifies the, the accumulation of wealth in a world of hunger. Or how about 2 Thessalonians 3.10? For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Well, this abolishes charity. Um, how about Romans 9.16? So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy, which makes evangelism superfluous. Or lastly, how about 1 Timothy 2.4? God our Savior desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth means God is not sovereign in conversion. Why is this important? By twisting scripture, Judaizers methodically undermine the teacher of the truth. If you can undermine the teacher, you undermine the message. Has God really said? Has God really said? So in response, Paul here in Galatians, and we look at verses, uh, verses 13 and 14, comes to acknowledge and confess his dark past and ultimately in how he was lifted out of this quagmire by the grace of God. Of course, Paul knew the facts of Jesus' life. He knew the claims of Jesus. That was the basis of his persecution. But that was bare knowledge in the midst of his ignorance and darkness. He had no supernatural understanding of the gospel. So beginning in 13, Paul now supports his conversion in three ways. Pre-conversion, conversion, and post-conversion. In essence, an autobiography. He shows us that he did, not, he did receive his gospel from Jesus directly. It is evident, and as we've been discussing in his pre-conversion, it's evident from his conversion and what happens after his conversion. 
Verse 13, for you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Philippians 3, I'll read it. Verse 2. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are of the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and take pride in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself could boast as having confidence even in the flesh, if anyone thinks he is confident in the flesh, I have more reason. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Two things marked my former manner of life. He used to persecute, he persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And two, he was advancing in Judaism beyond many of his contemporaries, being more zealous for his ancestral traditions. There's that word again. Now, Mosaic law is not in view here, but tradition, halacha, it's a body of Jewish oral law that surrounded the Torah and in doing so often obscured it which is true of all false gospel. It obscures the truth. It clouds the truth. I was a fanatic, says Paul. I was a legalist. He was a bigot, a ritualist, a persecutor, a hater of Jesus, a hater of the gospel. How could I ever have changed so fast, so then hours, three days, I'm preaching Jesus is the Son of God and proving it? What would he use to prove it? Well, the Old Testament and the life of Jesus, his works and words. Remember, the gospel had no attraction to Paul. He wasn't seeking it. He couldn't seek it. He was dead in his sin. A man in that mental and emotional state is in no mood to change his mind or be changed by men. He'd heard all that Christians had to say. And so when we go over, go with me over to Acts 26, if you would. Verse 11. This is uh, Paul's defense before Agrippa. I'll back it up to verse 9. So I thought to myself that I had to act in strong opposition to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons after receiving authority from the chief priests, but I also cast my vote against them when they were being put to death. 
And, and as I was punishing them, often in the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And since I was extremely enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. And now we see in verse 14, of, go back with me to Galatians verse 14 now. Um, I was advancing, literally in the Greek, that's chopping. Someone with a machete in his hand, going through the jungle, hacking my way through the jungle, chopping ahead, beating out a path, hacking down every obstacle in the way of advance of Judaism. I was hacking down the Christians that I saw standing in the way of the advance of Judaism. I was where beyond the other countrymen of mine. Now tell me, I was more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions than anyone else. How, how in the moment of time did I stop and become a preacher of Jesus Christ and the gospel? That's the question he's answering. He's asking here. But once the scales were lifted from his eyes, Paul, the abuse of the Old Testament law and the lack of understanding of who Jesus was had, had made the fulfillment of the law clear to him. He understood now what was happening. You see, people, when Jesus came... Everything changed. Jesus did not come to cleanse the temple in his anger. He was preparing for the abolishment of the temple through his body. Take, eat, this is my body. He didn't want to eliminate the bad priests and keep the good priests. He came to eliminate the need for the priesthood and rend the veil in the temple in two from top to bottom. He didn't just want to clean up people's attitudes as they gave their sacrifices. He came to fulfill the law through his work on the cross and so call them to repentance through believing him as Lord and Savior. Jesus came to obliterate the sacrificial system because with all its ceremonies, all its rituals, all its sacrifices, its external trappings, the temple, the Holy of Holies, including the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath observance went away with all the rest that belonged to Judaism. We know this because we see this by watching Jesus and how he treated the Sabbath. The Sabbath had been corrupted by sin. I want to read from you 10 traditional Sabbath rules. This is from Jesus' time that Paul and many others who believed were saved from. There were laws about wine. Honey, milk, spitting, writing, and cleaning clothes. Scribes could not carry their pens, tailors their needles, students their books on the Sabbath. To carry anything larger than a dried fig was, was forbidden. If an object had been picked up in a public place, it could only be put down in a private place. If an object were tossed in the air, it had to be caught with the same hand. No candle or flame could be lit or extinguished. No bathing could be done, since water might spill onto the floor from the tub and accidentally wash it. No furniture could be moved inside the house, since the ruts it would make in the dirt floor might constitute plowing. A radish could not be left in salt as it might accidentally pickle, and pickling constituted work. 
a woman could not look in the mirror as she might be tempted to pull out gray hairs. But not to be outdone, 10 Sabbath prohibitions from a modern interpretation of the Talmud, the Mishnah. Number one, opening an umbrella. Number two, tearing open a new roll of toilet paper in the restroom. Number three, running. Number four, trimming your fingernails. Number five, blowing air into a ball or balloon. Number six, squeezing out fresh orange juice. Number seven, taking an object from the private domain into the public domain on a computer. Brushing your teeth. Now this comes from Jews who, live, who lived in Central and Eastern Europe. Nine, to braid your hair. Ten, to apply body lotion. The slavery, the slavery of the false gospel. Matthew 15, 6. We've just looked at that and just, people honor me with their lips, their heart is far from me, and in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So Paul is saying in this section, you've exchanged the word of God for your other traditions. Well, that was Paul's pre-conversion. What about his conversion? Look at verse 15 of Galatians. But when God, who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through his, what? His grace. Yes, God had predetermined the salvation of this man. God is omnipotent and predetermines the salvation of every person in his calling. He has to. We are dead and so incapable of it ourselves. So there's this effectual call to salvation on the Damascus Road. Through his grace. But when God was pleased, when God was pleased, he called me. Howard actually preached on unconditional election back in 2006. I'm going to quote from that. Unconditional election, the sovereign act of God, his decision only, in eternity past, whereby he chose all believers to salvation with all its accompanying blessings and obligations. Election and predestination are conditional, are unconditional. They are not based on man's response, whereby God unconditionally elects some to salvation, which Christ secures with an all-sufficient atonement. This is what we've been looking at. Brothers and sisters, when a man is going headlong in one direction, as Paul was, and suddenly reverses and stops, and goes in the opposite direction, Look for a divine explanation, a divine source. God saved Paul. God broke into his darkness, transforming his life. This was the miracle of his conversion, initiated by God because he was chosen by God. On the Damascus Road, when a light from heaven suddenly came, descended, engulfed him, slammed him to the ground, and blinded him, he heard... I am Jesus who you are persecuting. Everything changed. Everything changed. He saw Christ, the risen Christ. And Paul saw him five more times in his life. So if you think Paul wasn't an apostle, he's stating it. He saw, he saw him five more times in his life. He saw the risen Christ. 
He saw the victor, and he knew that he was now full of mercy and full of grace. The light broke on his darkness, just as in John 1, 5, the light shone in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it, and the veil over his eyes was gone. The desire for breathing threats and murder disappeared, and he discarded all of his traditional religion, all of the Jewish Judaist extras, and as later he declared to the Philippians, he declared it, what? Human excrement. What resulted was three days of blindness as what was happening. Jesus is tutoring him through the Holy Spirit. No human source here, no no human source. And it didn't stop there. The God who set me apart in my mother's womb The God who called me through his grace on the Damascus Road was pleased to reveal his son to me. Why? So I might preach him among the Gentiles. Who were the Gentiles? Basically dogs. They were what? Separated from God and his promises. We see here in Ephesians 2, 11 and 12, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh were at that time separated from Messiah, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Verification that this is the work of God. Again, verification. God chooses. God regenerates through the call of grace. God reveals his son so that faith is born and attached to the Son of God. And then he becomes what? A preacher of the very things he persecuted to people who had no reason, no reason from their perspective to have anything to do with the gospel, the Gentiles. Look at my conversion. My pre-conversion state proves that I didn't receive this from men. My conversion is all about God. What am I doing on the Damascus Road? I got papers from the high priest. I'm headed to Damascus for the purpose of imprisoning believers in Jesus. I'm not some second-hand apostle. Nobody gave me this message again. Jesus showed up to me on the Damascus road. And then this would beg the question, people. Well, he might have done that for Paul, but does he do that for us? After all, we're not apostles. He still, yes, he does. Yes, he does. He does do that. People, it's the same miracle. He stops us dead in our sinful tracks and reverses us at salvation. Acts 9, Paul is chosen. Acts 13, he's set apart. Paul had nothing to do with it. And it wasn't brought about by men. It was wrought by God. God called him. God gave him life. He responds in fact, the physical graphic example of this, if, if you think about it, is the raising of Lazarus in John 11. When Jesus called Lazarus to come forth, he is demonstrating that, what? Only Jesus can bring forth, back forth, can bring forth life from death. Be it spiritual or physical. Go with me back over again to Acts 26. Uh, 
uh, verse 12, it's again Paul's defense before Agrippa. If you go back with me there, please. Verse 12. Sir, I'm hitting this one hard because it's so important. So while engaged, as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me, and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. I, and I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Just stop right there. When the Lord God blinds you and knocks you to, a gr to the ground, you immediately know and understand who did it. Okay? But get up, stand on your feet, and for this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you as a servant and as a witness, not only to the things which you have seen me, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. The grace that called him revealed Christ to him. The grace that called him revealed Christ to him produced not any goodness in Paul as he had none. Grace, God's grace through Christ brought obedience to him, willing obedience. Here's the key phrase. He revealed his son to me. Three days of blindness, he was receiving revelation concerning Christ from Jesus Christ. For three days, Jesus mentored him. And then he came out and preached that Jesus is the son of God. How could he have proved it so fast? Well, he was a very knowledgeable person in the Old Testament, all the proof was there. And you, really, and you really can't describe Paul from any human perspective. It's really impossible. His pre-conversion, his conversion, had to be dramatic acts of God, and they were. And Paul received this on the Damascus Road, again, through no man, no preacher. And after that, after the final apostle, that's no longer the norm, right? In Romans, Paul writes this. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And how will they call on one of whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a what? A preacher. How beautiful are the feet of those <coughs> excuse me, who preach the good news. And so how, here's, here's where Howard and I stand with you week after week. This is why we're here. We're, people were all proclaimers of the gospel. Not just Howard and I, it, it, but it doesn't take a Damascus road because even through humble preachers, God does the exact same miracle of transformation. You and you and you and you are proof of it. Now go back with me, back with me if you would, to Galatians chapter 16, the second part of 16 and 17, for Paul's post-conversion. 
Galatians 1, 16b and 17. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Now I can tell you, there's, there's a lot of ink that's been spilt on exactly the timeline of how this worked. I'm not going to get into that, because that that's a whole other sermon on itself. Um, we know that Paul went to Damascus until his sight was recovered. We know that in Acts 9. And then um, recovered through Ananias. And then to uh, Jerusalem to meet other apostles who were v very much afraid of him as Barnabas had to lead him to meet them. Um, boldly, uh, he was preaching Christ in, in Jerusalem. And, and it does never say, oh, he was learning at the feet of, of X person or Y person. It just says as soon as he got there, he started preaching. And he preached so powerfully and so boldly, the Jews were trying to kill him. And so the gospel, Paul is preaching as the gospel of grace without circumcision, without the law. It's not something that he got from the apostles of, in Jerusalem, certainly. He got it how? From, from Jesus himself. And so the apostles and disciples grab him, rush him to Caesarea, ultimately back to Tarsus. It says in verse 17, Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. He did not go to Jerusalem, meaning he did not go there to be under their study, okay? He went quickly, had to leave. Where did he go? I went to Arabia. Now, Arabia can mean anything from kind of where Damascus was all the way south to the tip of Sinai. And, and again, there's been a whole lot of ink spilt on where he might have gone. It's not that important. What matters that what, what matters is, what did he do in Arabia? He sits at the feet of Jesus, a hellbound sinner, breathing mur murder and violence, ends up in the desert, sitting at the feet of Jesus. I want to end with this. Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son. You all know this story. The prodigal son depicts the worst imaginable sinner, it's you and me, who has turned his back on his father and takes off with his inheritance and wasted on prostitutes and wild living in a foreign country. When he runs out of money, he finds himself in a famine. He ends up trying to eat the food of pigs, but really can't do that. He's sick. He falls into despair. He has to go home, back to his father. He comes back. And this is the most important phrase. The father sees him as he approaches. There's the father who represents the Lord Jesus Christ in the parable, sees him from afar, runs to him, throws his arms around him, kisses him, embraces him as his son. Puts a robe on him, the robe of entitlement in the family. Puts a ring on him, the ring of authority in the family. Puts sandals on him. Sandals were worn by sons. Slaves went barefoot. Therefore, we can see in the story that God in Christ has fully embraced the sinner. When? When the sinner can do nothing to make things right. That's the gospel of grace, people. 
It's a gift. It's a gift. You can't earn it. Whether you have never trusted in Christ as Savior, or if you have perhaps are a believer but have fallen in your walk or felt yourself adrift in some way, knowingly sinned against a brother, and you are made to understand your sinfulness and desire to repent before God, you are that sinner coming back to the Father, to Christ. And in Christ, you will receive such grace and forgiveness. It was the same for Paul. It's the same for each of us. It's the same for you and me. Lord, we just thank you today and just thank you for the, the, the simplicity of the gospel, the power of the gospel. Just the drama here in Galatians is, is, is unbelievable. And it, why studying the scriptures is just so important and so vital, Lord. We, we thank you for giving them to us for illuminating them through your spirit, for causing us to desire to go out and share with others as we are able. We, we thank you for that. We thank you for uh, just this, this time this morning as we, uh, as we commune in your word, and we just thank you for the, um, just, the, just the tremendous spirit of, of love that exists in this church. We just thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.